You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the December 8th edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we'll be touching on policy, our last policy show for 2022. I'm very happy to welcome Will Burns. He is a visiting professor in the Environmental Policy and Cultural Program at Northwestern University and Emeritus Co-Executive Director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University one of the old guard of carbon removal. Will, so nice to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. And then we also welcome back this week, Chris Barnard, Policy Director for the American Conservation Coalition, back from COP. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Radhika. And as always, I'm Radhika Mulgafkar, Head and Supply and Methodology at Nori. So, in today's episode, we're going to take a look back at some of the biggest news in CDR policymaking in 2022. It's going to be rapid fire. There's a lot to cover because we're going to span from April's IPCC report to August Inflation Reduction Act to November's COP27. So let's just get started and we'll start with the most recent, which is COP. Um, so Will, curious to get your perspective on COP. The media coverage sort of painted a muddled picture of progress, but the discussions on removals did evolve. So what happened with regard to removals to bring our audience up to date? Yeah, there were a number of developments, some of them directly on removal, some that were pertinent to removal. So uh, there was a lot more uh, uh, discussion and finalization of uh, accounting procedures under Article 6 of Paris, which provides for uh, market-based mechanisms, including emissions trading and and projects like we used to have under the Kyoto Protocol in terms of the clean development mechanism. And those accounting procedures will be pertinent for any uh, potential emissions trading associated with uh, carbon removal projects, uh, and we're, we're likely to see uh, that applied. Uh, there were a number of announcements uh, by uh, countries and states of new initiatives at COP27. Uh, there was a discussion in Luxembourg of utilizing the feed-in tariff uh, instrument uh, in the context of carbon removal. Uh, there's a, a bill being sponsored in Massachusetts to reduce emissions by uh, 85% in, and then uh, sop up the other 15% through removals. Uh, and then there's a new bill in California uh, that would uh, uh, amend the offset component of the of their legislation and require that all offsets be met by uh, uh, verifiable uh, carbon removals. Uh, so that was a big deal. And then there was something called the Carbon Removal uh, Mission Innovation Launchpad that was uh, that was uh, created there, uh, which is a consortium of countries uh, that are. Uh, working on uh, clean energy initiatives and also, in this case, uh, carbon removal initiatives. And it's a, a pledge uh, by these countries uh, to do several things, including uh, building at least uh, uh, one 1,000 ton uh, CO2 per year CDR project by 2025, uh, contribute about $100 million collectively to support CDR plants, establish a, a, an MRV working group uh, and uh, 
and coordinate be, uh, between these countries in terms of uh, research and uh, development. Um, and so, Chris, you were the only one of the three of us who was on the ground, though I imagine it was quite chaotic there. Um, so from our count, there are about 70 side events related to CDR at COP27. Which of the events did you attend and, you know, what were your impressions of CDR at this conference generally? Yeah, well, as, as you rightly say, it is a, it is very chaotic um, and there's a million events happening at the same time. Uh, but you're right that there were a ton of CDR events. Um, my organization, ACC, hosted some events that had included CDR discussions. Um, and then obviously the, the Carbon Business Council, um, they've been on this podcast. They they had a bunch of events. And so we, we were supportive there. Um, and it really was quite cool to see the industry rally in a way that I feel like it hadn't before uh, and show up en masse. Uh, at COP, um, so so it was just it was just really cool to see such a focus on on CDR and have so many of them involved there. So I'm curious for both of you if you have one thing that came out of COP 27 related to CDR that was, did you find the most optimistic for the state of the industry? Um, Will I'll start with you and then I'll switch it to Chris. I think this mission innovation launchpad was uh, was a was a pretty uh, substantial thing, and not because of the amount of money that's uh, being committed, which is not that large, or even the nature of the ambition. Uh, but I think it's an inflection point where uh, governments are formally recognizing the role of carbon removal within uh, the Framework Convention and Paris uh, Agreement uh, framework in a way that they really shied away from in the past. Um, I think a lot of countries were afraid, developed countries were afraid of being accused of uh, trying to use carbon removal as a fig leaf. Uh, in lieu of really aggressively decarbonizing. And I think there's increasing recognition by both developed countries and developing countries uh, that uh, what the IPCC has told us is true. We're going to need uh, both. And so this was a, a, a an, an institutional framework to engender cooperation between uh, uh, countries uh, within the, uh, uh, the Paris framework. Chris? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would just echo what Will said, but I would also add just like what I mentioned earlier about the industry showing up. It feels like for quite a while, the conversation around carbon, uh, around CDR and kind of this exciting new technology that would be such a an important player in the fight against climate change, it, it's felt a little abstract at times in the past. And I feel like now for the first time, like all these startups being there and these companies and these trade associations and all that kind of stuff. It, it, I think it's just really cool for them to be a part of the conversation and to show that it's not just a future thing, but that these are actually happening right now and they're investing in this innovation right now and they have all kinds of really exciting applications. Um, so I think just kind of the, the reality of them being there was, was super positive to me. So since you both uh, talked about the carbon removal mission launch pad, let's kind of dive into that a little bit more. Um, so uh, basically at this COP, each member uh, country of the Mission Innovations Carbon Removal Launchpad committed to build at least one pilot facility and contribute towards a collective fund of $100 million by 2025. So Will, 
What do you think the facilities um, will be built? What types of facilities do you expect to be built? And um, is what the US is doing towards the DAC hubs count towards this plan? Yeah, so the, the three uh, approaches that were identified, at least initially, that the countries are going to focus on is uh, direct air capture, uh, BECs, and uh, carbon mineralization. And, uh, and they expressly said uh, that uh, the uh, commitments that are made under the terms of the agreement can include uh, projects that are already underway that have the potential to, to meet the target. Uh, so I guess it depends on if you define the DAC hubs as underway or not. Uh, but uh, if yes, uh, uh, it, it could encompass those. Otherwise, uh, they'd have to be, uh, you know, new facilities. But uh, as I said, they can be pretty modest. You're talking about, uh, a, a, you know, a thousand ton per year uh, project by 2025, right? And uh, you know, Orc is already what 4,000, and and the the Oxy is is a million, and Bison's more than a million. So uh, it's it's fairly de minimis. Chris, what did you think of the list of signees? I think it was the U.S., Canada, EU, Japan, Norway, and the U.K. Um, I noticed Israel's not on that list and they're doing a ton of work out of Israel. I talk to Israeli startups like once a week and obviously China and India are also. So what do you think of the list uh, of people, of countries committed? Yeah, I mean, I I think broadly speaking, it's, it's good to see that many countries represented uh, and it doesn't surprise me that China's not on it, mostly because China's investments right now in the clean energy kind of future are kind of purely self-interested, whereas investing in CDR is kind of the, the calculus for like broad economic gains aren't quite there as opposed to, for example, cornering the battery market or whatever in the way that China's trying to do. So that's probably why they're not as interested in investing in this right now. But obviously like the IPCC says, this is gonna be a really important area of technology to help meet climate targets. And, and I am confident that it is in the in the US and the West's interest to kind of lead that transition and to, to be a leader in that technology. Oh, another country I was uh, surprised by wouldn't that is not there is also is Iceland. Um, they're doing some really cool work out in there. I was there in September and they have all kinds of really cool CDR projects with mineralization and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, that's one other thing I, I picked up on. Uh, Will, I'm just curious to get your perspective because there's no country from the global south. Do you think that that will um, minimize the impact that this has from an equity and social justice or environmental and social justice perspective? How do these countries bring the global south along if they need to? Yeah, I think it certainly would have been helpful. Uh, the uh, you know, mission innovation certainly includes countries from the global south, uh, Brazil's in there, Chile, Morocco, uh, China. Uh, but uh, as, as you point out, none of them are 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 part of this initial uh, launch pad. And I'm not entirely certain why, uh, but I think uh, ultimately uh, uh, that will uh, that will be important. Maybe this is just a. Uh, you know, preliminary effort to start to uh, uh, to develop uh, some standards and and hopefully it'll broaden from there. But it it, it is a bit glaring. So moving on, 
because the list continues. Well, let's talk about the IPCC. So um, as we've discussed on the show, the IPCC released its sixth assessment of the climate literature. And it, you know, these reports are always a very important part of the world's understanding of climate threats and progress. Um, carbon removal continues to be a big part of the discussion. So Will, were you surprised at the level that CDR is getting, the level of interest CDR is getting from the scientific community, or has it just been a long time coming? Well, I mean, I think certainly once we got to the fifth assessment report, I think we realized that this was, it was baked into the mix. If you looked at the fifth assessment report, uh, there were 208 scenarios that they ran that could, of, of the thousands of scenarios they ran, that could hold temperatures to two degrees Celsius. And 184 of those contemplated large scale use of, of, of carbon dioxide, right? And emissions have continued to increase since the fifth assessment report, right? So I don't think it was surprising that the sixth assessment report concluded uh, that carbon removal would be even more important, especially if we're uh, committing, as we as parties seem to have in Glasgow, to focusing on 1.5C instead of 2, right? So at the, in the sixth assessment report in the working group three report, um, there were uh, a seven what they called illustrative mitigation pathways, right, that uh, achieve uh, 1.5 uh, or or two degrees Celsius, and all of those but one uh, included uh, carbon removal. And the one that didn't was was the most unrealistic. It it assumed that global energy demand would would be cut in half in the next thirty years, which is ridiculous, right? And even the most optimistic of these paths in terms of the market penetration of renewables still presumes that we're going to need at least three gigatons of carbon removal annually by 2050. And 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 I think most of the other ones are are you know at a much higher scale, seven or 10, for example. So uh, I think that path is is set in terms of uh, the the view of the IPCC uh, in this in this context. So Chris, from you know your perspective as being part of a more broader climate community, a climate advocacy group, um, do you think that the people you work with in that broader community um, have started to accept that CDR is necessary and that it's become a tool that we just have to start pushing on? I think it's certainly become less controversial historically more of the kind of uh, progressive climate activists have been skeptical of it because they see it as as a fake climate solution and it doesn't doesn't necessarily move us away from fossil fuels and things like that but obviously the ipcc is kind of the gold standard in climate science and so it's interesting when they say we need cdr to meet our climate goals we need nuclear energy to meet our climate goals that it's you can't really argue with that really um the other thing that i'll point out just since we're talking about the sixth uh, assessment report is something that was really interesting is that it ruled out both the um, most severe climate scenarios as implausible, which I think is, is good news. And it kind of like pushes back against some of the climate alarmism, but it also, um, it also says that the, mo the best case climate scenarios are off the table as well, because we've gone too far. Uh, and so it kind of pushes back against the climate deniers. And so it's kind of a, a funny situation there where the, the best available science is saying that 
the rational middle is correct. Climate change is a big problem. We need to do something about it. It's not the end of the world and it's not not happening. So we got to do something about it. And I, I know that's kind of a, an interesting thing that I always like to mention when, when talking about the most recent uh, climate science on this. Yeah, it is. It is nice to see the rational middle getting uh, its due. <laughs> in, but that's what science is about, right? Being rational, I I believe. Um, Will, one more question for you again, because uh, I know you and I have talked a little bit again about like the environmental justice movement. Are you seeing anything on your end from your students or from the activists that you talk to and work with? Um, being more accepting of CDR as not, you know, a not a this or that kind of solution, but a necessary part of the overall solution. I think there there is a faction within the environmental justice movement that acknowledges uh, that uh, that carbon removal may be important, and that if if done well, uh, can comport with environmental justice standards. So you have. Uh, uh, people like uh, Data for Progress, for example, and the National Wildlife Federation um, that have been working with uh, some of these environmental justice groups to try to establish standards for siting of, of the new direct air capture hubs, for example, in a way uh, that, uh, that ensures protection of en environmental justice values. Um, you also have um, a uh, and you and you saw this at uh, at COP27. Um, countries uh, from the global south uh, talking about uh, the potential role of carbon removal as 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 a justice measure. Right, that uh, that part of the uh, ultimate higher ambition under the Paris Agreement that developed countries may have to meet uh, will include. Uh, funding substantial amounts of 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 carbon removal to effectuate the notions of justice and equity under under the agreement. All right. Well, onwards to the next topic, which is the Inflation Reduction Act and the forty five Q additions. So, if any of our listeners were not aware, the U.S. passed its largest ever climate bill this year after two years of lots of backroom drama. Um, credible estimates have found the new investments could help the U.S. reach the goal of having its emissions by 2050. It also included a significant boost to CDR with enhancements to the existing 45Q tax credit for carbon removal, storage, and utilization. So, Will, at just a high level, what changes were made to 45Q, and do you think they represent a legitimate interest in increasing negative emissions, or do they open the door for uh, less beneficial practices, let's say. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, some of the changes were it, it, uh, in the context of carbon removal is it uh, it increased the uh, uh, the tax incentive from $50 to $180 a ton uh, for uh, carbon removal with uh, storage uh, in the case of direct air capture. Uh, it increased the amount for utilization, such as for enhanced oil recovery or, or other uses, from $50 uh, to $130. Um, it lowered the threshold for projects that can attain credits from 100,000 tons uh, uh, to 1,000 tons, right? So many, many more facilities, including some of the direct air capture facilities we've talked about, would be uh, eligible. Uh, it extended the construction window seven years to 2033. 
um, and you can get the uh, developers can get the credit as a fully refundable direct payment as if it were an overpayment of taxes, which uh, is extremely important from a standpoint of initial capital for some of these uh, projects. Um, I think that a, there's a there's a lot of people who believe that by bumping up the amount that you can get for storage to $180 as opposed to $130 for use may tip the balance between potential uh, projects focusing on enhanced oil recovery, uh, which is where most of the CO2 has gone to date, and storage. And um, one way that you can see this is that if you look at a, a lot of the projects that are being planned, both for CCS and for uh, CDR, uh, you're starting to see a lot more focus on, on storage and a lot less discussion of enhanced oil recovery. That may be both because of the, the backlash against um, using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, but also because I think the, uh, the tax incentives now uh, send a, a market signal that's decidedly more in the direction of storage than, than EOR. Uh, I, I like that perspective. Well, that's a, that's nice to hear. Um, so Chris, the bill passed almost exclusively on democratic party support, but we know that 45 Q has long been supported by Republican legislators. So, um, how do you feel about this law? And, um, do you think that there's a broader future for, um, bipartisan support for some of these negative emission strategies? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act, obviously it's a little bit of a misnomer. It won't really do much to to reduce inflation. If anything, it probably have the opposite effect. Um, and it's, you know, there's definitely things in there that we are supportive of, um, kind of from a center right perspective. There's good stuff on CDR, good stuff on nuclear. There's some pretty rational stuff, even on oil and gas in there. Uh, and so, so on the whole, some of the climate provisions are, are really pretty good. Um, I think one concern obviously with inflation is kind of the, the size of the price tag and, and also some of the, the politics around it, uh, especially now that Democrats struck a deal with Senator Manchin that permitting reform. So basically streamlining regulations to build these infrastructure projects would be kind of a part and package of this this broader IRA push, and that's obviously not worked out. And there's a study from Princeton recently showing that up to 90% of the climate investments from the IRA would be wasted if we don't have permitting reform. Um, and so I think I think broadly speaking, the politics of it were a little bit frustrating because there there are good bipartisan precedents on. Um, climate investments from the Energy Act of 2020 to the bipartisan infrastructure law. There's definitely areas where Republicans and Democrats have worked together. And so I just hope that there will be enough bipartisan will in the next Congress to pass permitting reform um, and to pass um, some other kind of more targeted climate uh, legislation that is really necessary to, to get us across the finish line. Uh, I, I do think 45Q is, like you mentioned, something that Republican legislators have ten tended to support because it is relatively market-based um, and often in their districts, it's something that will help them, uh, especially like a Texas member like Dan Crenshaw and, and people like that. So 
anyway, all that to say, I, I, I do hope that the uh, bipartisan will to work on climate change hasn't been completely shot for next Congress. Yeah, I was I was disappointed to see that the permitting reform stuff was just stopped in its tracks. Uh, I, I think all three of us agree on this call that it's a necessity to make CDR successful in any meaningful way. But let's pivot now to the EU because they just very recently at the end of November released its the its framework for certifying carbon removals. It appears to be the world's most sophisticated framework for measuring and validating CDR credits. And it also helps governments incorporate removals into their climate plans, though I will also note there's been a significant amount of pushback uh, on their framework as well. So this question is for both of you. I'll start with you, Chris, this time. But what what is your reaction to the framework? And you know, how do you think it will affect the growth of CDR in Europe, which in my opinion, is lagging a little bit in terms of the, at least the startups and stuff that I talk to. Yeah, I think one of the problems that have, uh, that has really kind of hurt the industry uh, is the lack of kind of a central certification system to provide that certainty that what you're investing in as a carbon removal is actually a, a carbon removal B will last long enough um, to be considered a carbon removal and C is um, additional. So that that project would have uh, not happened without the funding you're giving to it. And there's been a lot of scandals and problems with the carbon market industry in recent years. And so I am very optimistic um, that this will help kind of iron some of those things out and provide that certification to, which is gonna be crucial for the kind of market signal that this is good to invest in and companies will will be able to Go ahead and forge ahead and do that kind of stuff so i think broadly speaking good it's good apparently there's a lot of unknowns still about like how exactly it will be certified and and uh what kind of projects and and all that kind of stuff so there's still some question marks but broadly speaking i think at least the concept is good you think it'll help europe jumpstart its industry because now there'll be enough um certainty I mean, yeah, that's 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 the idea, um, especially like if the, if the EU is part of um, part of this carbon removal mission launch pad that was announced, um, they're going to need more private sector interests and buy in on this. And so providing that certification, I think, will be an important step in that direction. And Will, what are what are your thoughts on the framework? And, and maybe you can speak a little to the pushback that it's been getting, because I noticed you nodded when I said that. Yeah, so. I mean, one one reason that I'm skeptical about it uh, substantially advancing the cause of carbon removal in Europe, uh, or or advancing it in a way that'll ensure high integrity on the axes that Chris talked about, like permanence and additionality and so forth, is that it's it's still a voluntary approach, right? And uh, and it is potentially. Uh, as you pointed out, more granular and more stringent uh, in its methodology than some of the alternatives. But if you're industry and um, and you're looking to get the cheapest possible carbon credits, you may not want to go down that route. And the public may not know the difference between you purchasing, you know, uh, low integrity uh, credits uh, utilizing either no verification system or uh, a more uh, 
uh, lenient verification system than what Europe is is calling for, right? So to the extent that it's 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 voluntary, at least initially, um, I don't know uh, if if it encourages more carbon removal or if it encourages you know higher integrity carbon removal. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of things to be worked out. Uh, uh, it it embraces both. Uh, 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 relatively non-permanent nature-based solutions, which it puts under the rubric of carbon farming. Uh, and then uh, it uh, it includes something called permanent storage, which is BECS and direct air capture. Um, I have some real problems with BECS being defined as permanent storage. Um, uh, and uh, and 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 I think there's going to be some real problems in determining uh how you uh, uh how you give credit for non-permanent uh uh storage in the in the context of soils for example or or forests uh uh it's not clear uh what how they're going to define uh, uh additionality testing which is a always a, a very uh difficult thing to do um that's that's something that's supposed to be worked out now is uh they're going to appoint, uh, you know, a a working group uh, to work on on developing specific methodologies for a, an array of different technologies. So we'll see um, how that uh, that works out. But uh, um, I think the good news about it is because it is being driven by a uh, a, a, a government uh, based uh, institution uh, is that it may provide the foundation ultimately for uh, compliance markets when they embrace carbon removal uh, and, and make it easier to make that, uh, that transition. Yeah, time will tell. It, it, it definitely felt a little light on the details, which I think, as we all know, the devil is in the details, but good for them for putting something forward, which is more than anyone else can say. Um, so final topic, launch of the Carbon Business Council, which I should disclose Nori is a founding member. So in July, 40 carbon removal businesses announced the launch of the Carbon Business Council, a trade group that aims to help grow the CDR industry. And in just a few short months, the group's membership has nearly doubled to over 70 companies. So, um, Will, I'll start with you. What do you think are the gaps in the CDR policymaking sphere, if any? And what are your hopes that a group like the Carbon Business Council can do? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of gaps, but I'm going to go big. Um, and uh, the 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 biggest gap that I think is is the lack of a regulatory mandate for carbon removal. Uh, I, in my opinion, if we rely on voluntary carbon markets, uh, it's it's going to be an extremely slow uh, embrace and rollout of of carbon removal in in a way uh, that'll probably ensure we pass critical uh, temperature thresholds and and other climatic thresholds. I think that ultimately um, we're going to need a, a a regulatory mandate and and I think it could be justified under international law I think if you uh, under the polluter pays principle or the no harm principle uh, you could justify requiring those that produce um, uh, carbon uh, and and the associated damage with it 
uh, to uh, to pay for its cleanup. And so the Dutch, for example, have been talking about carbon take back obligations, right, which would require uh, industry to uh, uh, to either uh, uh, remove the carbon themselves or or pay into a fund that would ensure uh, on a on a gradually ratcheting up uh, basis uh, that 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 the carbon they emit is removed, right? And so, what I'd like to see the council doing is uh, working uh, with the U.S. government and working with other governments uh, to look at uh, ultimately transitioning from uh, what I think is always going to be a tepid, voluntary uh, market embrace of carbon removal to a uh, a government uh, requirement of carbon removal that effectuates what the IPCC says has to be done in terms of uh, you know multi-gigaton uh, removals of carbon over the course of the century. Chris, your reaction to that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, predictably, that's not uh, an approach that, that we would take, um, not least because I think to, on the politics side of things, two things. The first is, I doubt that would ever really pass anyway. And so I, from my perspective, it would probably be wasted political energy at the expense of political energy that would advance the industry in meaningful ways. But the second is, even if it were to pass, it's one of those regulatory mandates that would kind of be imposed by Democrats, repealed by Republicans, reimposed by Democrats, re-repealed by Republicans, and it's just one of those things that I think would just go back and forth between administrations um, and, and actually, in in a sense, vilify the CDR industry for Republicans to the extent that they would then not really be interested in other conversations about ways to actually advance the industry. So so I, I worry about kind of the, the politics of that from at least conversations that we've had in D.C. Uh, I'll, I'll just throw in. Another gap, and like I've, I've, I think I sound like I've broken record on this podcast, but um, just just the permitting aspect of a lot of this, there's some some really interesting bills out there, including from Republicans, to make it easier to transport uh, captured carbon, to make it easier to have Class Six wells cited and permitted, um, to kind of clarify some of the legal and regulatory barriers in in places like Texas to. To be able to uh, put this underground and store it and all that kind of stuff. So I think, really, there's a lot of money floating out around there for this. There's, at least from what I can tell, a lot of private sector interest. It's just a lot of right now is making it as easy as possible to actually advance with these projects. And unfortunately, our regulatory structure right now really doesn't help with that. And even if we were to mandate or require these kind of CDR um, re removals, then even then the regulatory structure would make it needlessly expensive and difficult and complicated and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's definitely one of the areas that I think is the most important to address in that in the space. Well, I must say you both gave very compelling arguments. So uh, thank you for that and left me thinking about both those uh, about government regulation quite a bit. I just want to say that as a member of the Carbon Business Council, what I would love to see them do at some point is help unify the federal government, an agency of some sort or some single source where startups in this space know where to go, know how to access not only the permitting, but the technical resources. 
the funding resources right now it's sort of a scattershot across different agencies and it can make it very difficult for small companies to navigate and successfully utilize the resources that are out there so i'm hoping that they think of a new organizational structure for cdr at some point soon well, with that, I guess I get the last word today, uh, but I want to thank both Will and Chris uh, for joining me in the last policy episode of 2022, and I look forward to talking to you both in 2023. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. <laughs>